Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 27, Exodus chapters 26, 27, and 28. Well, in Exodus chapter 25, <clears throat> Jehovah gave us instructions on the three primary furnishings that are to be placed inside of the tabernacle's sanctuary. Uh, that was the Ark of the Covenant and the uh, golden candlestick or the menorah and the table of showbread. Uh, beginning in chapter 26 now tonight, we're going to get the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle itself. And we're going to move rather rapidly tonight and we're going to cover all of Exodus chapters 26 and 27 and even get into parts of chapter 28 as well as some New Testament writings that are pertinent to our subject. So, keep your Bibles open and handy. Let's read Exodus chapter 26 together, all of it, to begin this evening. Exodus chapter 26. You are to make the tabernacle with ten sheets of finely woven linen and with blue, purple, and scarlet yarn. You are to make them with cherubim, cherubim, worked in, that have been crafted by a skilled artisan. Each one is to be 42 feet long and 6 feet wide. All the sheets are to be the same size. Five sheets are to be joined one to another, and the other five sheets are to be joined one to another. Make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost sheet in the first set, and do the same on the edge of the outermost sheet in the second set. Make 50 loops on one sheet, make 50 loops on the edge of the sheet in the second set, the loops are to be opposite one another, make 50 fasteners of gold, and couple the sheets to each other with the fasteners so that the tabernacle forms a single unit. You are to make sheets of goat's hair to be used as a tent covering the tabernacle, make 11 sheets. Each sheet is to be 45 feet long and 6 feet wide. All 11 sheets are to be the same size. Join five sheets together and six sheets together and fold the sixth sheet double at the front of the tent. Make 50 loops on the edge of the outermost sheet in the first set, 50 loops on the edge of the outermost sheet in the second set. Make 50 fasteners of bronze. Put the fasteners in the loops and join the tent together so that it forms a single unit. As for the overhanging part that remains of the sheets forming the tent, the half sheet remaining is to hang over the back of the tabernacle and the 18 inches uh, on the one side and the 18 inches on the other side of that remaining in the length of the sheets forming the tents to hang over the tabernacle to cover it on each side. You're to make a covering for the tent of tanned ramskins and outer covering of fine leather. Make the upright planks for the tabernacle out of acacia wood. Each plank is to be 15 feet long and two and a quarter feet wide. There are to be two projections on each plank, and the planks are to be joined one to another. That is how you're to make all the planks for the tabernacle. Make the planks for the tabernacle as follows. Twenty planks for the south side, facing southward. Make forty silver sockets under the twenty planks. Two sockets under one plank for its two projections. Two sockets under another plank for its two projections. For the second side of the tabernacle, to the north, Make 20 planks, and there are 40 silver sockets, two sockets under one plank, and two under another. For the rear part of the tabernacle towards the west, make six planks. For the corners of the tabernacle in the rear, make two planks. These are to be double 
uh, from the bottom all the way to the top, but join to the single ring. Do the same with both of them there to form the two corners. Thus, there will be eight planks with their silver sockets, 16 sockets, two sockets under one plank, two under another. Make crossbars of acacia wood, five for the planks on the one side of the tabernacle, five crossbars for the planks on the other side of the tabernacle, and five crossbars for the planks on the, at the side of the tabernacle at the rear toward the west. The middle crossbar, halfway up the planks, is to extend from end to end. Overlay the planks with gold, make gold rings for them through which the crossbars will pass, and overlay the crossbars with gold. You are to erect the tabernacle according to the design you have been shown on the mountain. You are to make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely woven linen. Make it with cherubim worked in that have been crafted by a skilled artisan. Hang it with gold hooks on four acacia wood posts overlaid with gold and standing in four silver sockets. Hang the curtain below the fasteners. Then bring the ark for the testimony inside the curtain. The curtain will be the divider for you between the holy place and the especially holy place. You are to put the ark cover on the ark for the testimony in the especially holy place. You are to put the table outside the curtain and the menorah opposite the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. Put the table on the north side. For the entrance to the tent, make a screen of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely woven linen. It should be in colors, the work of a weaver. For the screen, make five posts of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, and cast them for five sockets of bronze. Okay, we've already discussed that the tabernacle was basically divided into three zones of varying degree of holiness. The Holy of Holies was the greatest, the holy place was the second most, and then you had the outer courtyard. All right. Also recall that the perimeter on the tabernacle was basically a fence that was made out of cloth. Um, it was an open courtyard. The tent portion, which consisted only of the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, was the only portion of the tabernacle that had a roof. Now, understanding that there's some disagreement over exactly how long in modern measurement a biblical cubit is, the general consensus is that the perimeter of the outer court was about 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. All right. The tabernacle was always erected in an east-west orientation, all right, with the tent portion more towards the western end of it, and at the eastern end was the gates that you got into the tabernacle area. Um, since the tabernacle was meant to go wherever God directed Israel to move, it had to be mobile. All right? And its design was quite ingenious in order to accomplish this. The specifications were given here obviously meant for it to be assembled and disassembled, all right? and then transported multiple times. And now, it would have had to have been made to withstand the daunting conditions, conditions of the desert, all right? with its oven-like dryness and the fierce winds that were laden with this fine sand that was an ever-present bother. Right. Yet it was also not made of lightweight materials. Right. It had to be rugged, so it was heavy. Right. We're not going to get into it today, but the book of Numbers tells us that the precious metals alone totaled over eight tons, right. and the wood used for construction would have weighed many tons more. Right. Even the cloth and the ram skins would have been a considerable weight. Now, Numbers also tells us that several covered wagons pulled by teams of oxen were used to transport the tabernacle. 
However, all indications are that the furnishings from the inside of the tabernacle, uh, the ark, the menorah, the tables of showbread and incense were hand-carried. Various clans that formed the tribe of Levi were given specific articles that they were each to carry to handle any other was a trespass against the God of Israel. Now the curtain that ringed the outer court was made of made of finely woven linen sheets, and they were held in place by acacia wood pillars um, covered with bronze. And bronze sockets were placed at the bottom of each one of the pillars, and ropes were tied from the top to the bottom, uh, from the top off to the side. Um, and since this outer area was where everyday common humanity could enter, bronze was the metal that was used. And from a practical aspect, it was because bronze was harder and a lot more useful for construction, certainly, than gold or silver. At the top of each pillar, however, was a silver cap and some silver bars or hooks from which the curtains, these curtains that formed the blind around the tabernacle, were hung. Now, the yarn colors used to make the curtains of blues and purples and scarlets made this endeavor all the more expensive because those particular colors were the hardest to make. And we're told that apparently some or all of these linen sheets had pictures of cherubim, karuvim, woven into them. Now, I, I really can't explain the significance of the cherubim as much as I would like to, except to say that they obviously were a very important element. Since this was Yehovah giving this narrative on the details of his tabernacle, and since it had been made clear numerous times that the wilderness tabernacle is a physical earthly representation of the heavenly spiritual tabernacle, it must be that God employs numerous cherubim in service to him, generally as guardians of his holiness. And further, the cherubim have this unusual privilege of being near God and even interacting with God in his throne room in heaven. Now, the tent sanctuary was about 45 feet long, about, um, it was about 45 feet long, about 15 feet wide, alright, and, um, 15 feet high. It was divided into two rooms. The holy place was the larger of two rooms and was at the front. And uh, the holy of holies was a 15 by 15 by 15 cube that was at the back. And as we might expect, the acacia wood used in the sanctuary was covered in gold rather than the more common bronze like was used in the outside areas. Um, The gold on the interior would have reflected the light in a most useful and magnificent way. I mean, can you imagine the warm color of amber that that room would have taken on with the light being reflected from those golden walls? I mean, acacia wood planks were used to form the structure of the the outer structure of the sanctuary, and these planks were completely encased in gold. Now, the entire gold and wood structure of the tent was protected with a covering that consisted of four layers. And the innermost covering was of fine linen, 
Uh, next to it was woven goat hair. And then goat hair, you know, was really the most common material used for making tents. The vast bulk of the Israelites would have been using woven goat hair tents for themselves. as Because it was plentiful, durable, strong, and depending on the tightness of the weave, somewhat waterproof, although rain was hardly a problem where they were. Um, covering the goat hair layer was a layer of ram skins, which had been dyed red. Right? And finally, the outermost layer, which had to face the harsh desert weather, this, la- this layer was a bit of a mystery. Right? Because the Hebrew word used for it is tachash, tachash, T-A-C-H-A-S-H. And it's, 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 it referred to some type of animal skin. Uh, many translators make this tachash to be simply a high grade of leather. But that defies logic because tanned leather from cattle, cattle was common. And, and, and a commonly understood Hebrew word was used to describe it. Takash is, is, is an unusual, uncommon word. And it's used only in the context of what was used to cover the wilderness tabernacle. It's been claimed by Jewish scholars for centuries that the outer covering was either seal or porpoise skins. Right. Obviously because it would have been airtight, water repellent, water repellent, and would have certainly offered a pretty good protection against that super fine dust out there in that desert. Now it should be no surprise that seal or porpoise or perhaps both right, were used because the Israelites were very near the Red Sea and those two creatures were plentiful. Right. Now, I imagine they bartered for them from local seaside residents or else some of the more well-to-do Israelites might have brought some with them from Egypt. But I, I kind of doubt that. It wouldn't have been a common material used in Egypt. Now, the main entrance into the tent, which one would take one then if you walk through it into the holy place, right, was called simply the door in Hebrew, Masach. Masach. M-A-S-A-K-H. Masach. One had to then walk through the holy place to get into the holy of holies. A veil, a curtain, enormous, 15 by 15, um, covered that entrance into the holy of holies. And it was called parochet, P-A-R-K-H-E-T, parochet, P-A-R-O-K-H-E-T. And it separated the holy place from the holy of holies. In Hebrew, the name of this front room, the holy place, is Kodesh. The Holy of Holies is called the Kodesh HaKodeshim. Let's go now to Exodus chapter 27. Open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 27. You are to make the altar of acacia wood seven and a half feet long and seven and a half feet wide. The altar is to be square and four and a half feet high. Make horns for it on its four corners. The horns are to be of one piece with it, and you're to overlay it with bronze. Make its pots for removing ashes and shovels, basins, meat hooks, and fire pans. All its utensils you are to make of bronze. Make for it a grate of bronze netting. 
And on the four corners of the netting make four bronze rings. Put it under the rim of the altar so that the netting reaches halfway up the altar. Make poles of acacia wood for the altar and overlay them with bronze. Its poles are to be put into the rings. The poles are to be both sides of the altar for carrying it. The altar is to be made of planks and hollow inside. They are to make it just as you were shown on the mountain. Here's how you are to make the courtyard of the tabernacle. On the south side, facing south, were to be the tapestries for the courtyard, made of finely woven linen, 150 feet for one side, supported on 20 posts and 20 bronze sockets. The hooks on the posts and the attached rings for hanging are to be of silver. Likewise, along the north side are to be tapestries, 150 feet long, hung on 20 posts and 20 bronze sockets with silver hooks and rings for the posts. Across the width of the courtyard on the west side are to be tapestries 75 feet long, hung on 10 posts in 10 sockets. The width of the courtyard on the east side facing east will be 75 feet. The tapestries for one side of the gateway will be 22 and a half feet long, hung on 3 posts and 3 sockets. For the other side there will be tapestries 22 and a half feet long on 3 posts and 3 sockets. For the gateway of the courtyard, there is to be a screen 30 feet made of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely woven linen. It should be in colors, the work of a weaver. It is to be on four posts in four sockets. All of the posts, all the way around the courtyard, are to be banded with silver and to stand in sockets of bronze. The length of the courtyard is to be 150 feet and the width 75 feet everywhere, with the height 7.5 feet. The tapestries and screen are to be of finely woven linen, and the sockets are to be of bronze. All the equipment needed for every kind of service in the tabernacle, as well as the tent pegs for the tabernacle and the courtyard, are to be of bronze. You are to order the people of Israel to bring you pure oil of pounded olives for the light and to keep a lamp burning continually. Aaron and his sons are to put it in the tent of meeting outside the curtain in front of the testimony and keep it burning from evening until morning before Adonai. This is to be a permanent regulation through all the generations of the people of Israel. <clears throat> Let me mention something to you. Uh, in our last tour to Israel, we went out to the territories. And we went to Shiloh, which most of us pronounce as Shiloh. And if you know your Bible, you know there was something special at Shiloh for a while. What was it? That's right, the wilderness tabernacle. Well, we went to the area where it was erected. And there was a stone fence all around it. We walked up steps that had been carved and well-worn where people would have entered, and there were even post holes around it where these very posts that you see, all right, and for the gates were located. You can go see that today. It's quite, quite amazing. Now, just as the ark was the most holy and important item inside this tent sanctuary, so is the brazen altar the most holy and important item outside of the tent sanctuary itself. Therefore, the design and placement of this great altar of sacrifice is all important. This is where countless millions 
millions of innocent animals are going to have their lives taken from them. Where their blood is going to be spilled and their bodies burnt to ashes. All necessary to atone for mankind's sins. So that Israel could be at peace with God. Now often this altar is called the brazen altar. In Hebrew it was called mitzvah ha'olah. Mitzvah ha'olah. Alright. Um, and brazen simply means it was made from the hardest metal that they had to work with in those times. Bronze, which is a mixture of iron and copper. So altar, altar of sacrifice, altar of burnt offering, brazen altar, all of these refer to the same thing. Right? For all practical purposes, the altar was really just a, a special uh, fire pit box. All right, it was constructed with acacia wood as a frame and then covered over with bronze so it wouldn't catch fire. And most of the uh, ancient Talmudic uh, writings indicate that they also even placed rocks, stones, around the inside. I'm sure that they had to replace this more than once All right, with the amount of heat. It just probably would have burned up that frame over time. Now, um, it was about seven and a half feet on each side, about four and a half to five feet high, and it had these protrusions at each corner that, that the Bible calls horns, the horns of the altar. Um, the horns were used to tie the sacrificial animals to the altar during the sacrificial procedure. Now, whether there was a spiritual significance to the horns or whether they were there strict, strictly for practical reasons is an open question. Altars of the Canaanites have been found. And several of these had horns on them as well. Now, many tools and implements for use with the altar would have been required. And, of course, they were also fashioned from bronze. Um, shovels to deal with the spent ashes, pails and buckets to catch the animal blood, uh, sensors, sometimes called fire pans, all right, to carry hot coals, and special shovel pans to carry the ashes outside of the camp where, where they were disposed of. So just as the Ark of the Covenant had rings attached to its sides to transport it, so it was with the brazen altar, so that it had rings attached to it with poles that could go through it to... Uh, to move it when the time came. Now the altar was not moved by being placed into a wagon. It was hand carried. It would have been heavy. All right, from location to location. Now the altar was placed just inside the gate of the outer court. All right. Now as I pointed out last week, when Moses had been told to build an altar on which to sacrifice animals to seal the covenant between Israel and Jehovah, the covenant of Moses, God had given had him place it outside the holy area, Mount, uh, Mount Sinai. Okay. Instead, in, instead of being inside this holy area of the mountain itself, it was in the valley below. It was beyond this stone fence that marked off the, the mountain all right, from the valley floor. All right. um, and that way, the common people could access it day and night. So true to form, 
The brazen altar was placed outside of the holy area of the tabernacle, the sanctuary, and on the inner court where people had access to it. Now, by the way, this most certainly means that the stone altar where the covenant sealing sacrifice had occurred must have been decommissioned once the brazen altar was built and operational. He wouldn't have had two. Now, the placement of the altar is most significant. It was between the outer court gate and the doorway into the tent sanctuary. Okay, One had to pass by the altar to get from outside to the tent. Uh, to, and this is all prophetic and symbolic of the purpose of Yeshua. We have to go through the sacrifice of Christ in order to get to the sanctuary of God. Now, probably the best symbol we could use to help us understand the connection between the brazen altar and Jesus would be the cross. Okay, That is, the cross was to Christ as the brazen altar was to all those sacrificial animals. Okay. The animals had to be raised up to the altar, bound to the horns of the altar, and there have their blood spilled to atone for Israel's sins. Christ had to be raised up on that cross to which he was bound, and there had his blood spilled to atone for Israel's sins. Now certainly the plan has also also made provision for Gentiles, okay, non-Israelites, to be mysteriously joined to Israel in order that we could partake in their covenants. Right? But that's the only way it could happen. Okay? We had to be grafted into Israel and their covenants with Yehovah in order to benefit by what Christ did. So, so that those of you who are a little newer to this class and maybe listening on the radio or on the internet, don't take this wrong. Right? I do not mean that one has to become a physical Jew in order to become a believer. Nor does one need to convert and begin practicing Judaism. The term grafting or grafted into is a metaphor. And it is used from a spiritual point of view, not physical. And it occurs when by faith you trust Yeshua as your Lord and Savior. This is where we're going to get into some readings from the New Testament now. So open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, and I'm going to start reading at verse 17. And I'm going to continue right on in to chapter 3, and we will read the first four verses of chapter 3 of Romans as well. So I'm going to start here at Romans 2, 17. Follow along, and there might be a couple of word differences there, but I think they'll be obvious uh, to you as we go along. But if you call yourself a Jew, and you rest on Torah, or your books, your Bibles might say the law, and boast about God and know his will and give your approval to, to what is right because you have been instructed from the Torah and if you have persuaded yourself that you are a guide to the blind, a light in the darkness, 
an instructor for the spiritually unaware and a teacher of children, since the Torah, since in the Torah you have the embodiment of knowledge and truth, then you who teach others, don't you teach yourself too? Okay. Preaching, thou shall not steal, do you steal? Saying, thou shall not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Detesting idols, do you commit idolatrous acts? You who take such pride in Torah, do you, by disobeying the Torah, dishonor God? As it says in the Tanakh, for it is because of you that God's name is blasphemed by the Gentiles. For circumcision is indeed of value if you do what Torah says. But if you're a transgressor of Torah, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the Torah, won't his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? Indeed, the man who is physically uncircumcised but obeys the Torah will stand as a judgment on you who've had a Brit Milah, circumcision ceremony, and have Torah written out, but you violate it. For the real Jew is not merely Jewish outwardly. True circumcision, true circumcision is not only external and physical. On the contrary, the true Jew is one inwardly. And true circumcision is of the heart. Spiritual, not literal. So that his praise comes not from other people, but from God. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? What's the value of being circumcised? Much in every way. In the first place, the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God. If some of them were unfaithful, so what? Does that, does their faith, faithlessness cancel God's faithfulness? Heaven forbid. God would be true even if everyone was a liar. As the Tanakh says, so that you, God, may be proved right in your words and win the verdict when you are put on trial. You know, sometimes we Christians tend towards overgeneralizing and taking a, a scientific, rational view of the Bible, whereby all things must be either or. Well, that's not how God operates. Okay. Here in Romans, it is explained that just because many Jews didn't follow to its logical conclusion God's plan of salvation for them, doesn't cancel God's plan or his faithfulness towards them. Further, we need to un begin to understand that long before Israel was created on earth, the heavenly ideal of Israel, which was God's principles being lived out among humans, existed. Okay? Israel was created on earth to serve God by recording these laws and principles that were made long before time began. Right, and demonstrating them so that all mankind would witness and under certain conditions, 
benefit by this heavenly ideal. Okay. Israel succeeded to some degree, and it failed to some degree. Okay. The Jew that kept to this heavenly ideal, according to Paul, is the one who has accepted the Messiah that Yehovah sent them, Yeshua. Paul further explains that Jews who kept to that heavenly ideals ideal is those that he labels as the true Jew or the real Jew from the heavenly spiritual perspective. Conversely, the Jew that simply did the rituals and observances apart from a true love and trust in God and rejects God's Messiah certainly remains physically a Jew, but he's failed in his purpose. Okay, But here, another concept is also introduced. That of a Gentile who trusts in Israel's Messiah, Yeshua, and thus that Gentile strives for that heavenly ideal. This Gentile, what today we call a saved person or a believer, is lumped into this category that Paul labels the true Jew. Okay, again, not that a Gentile suddenly has Hebrew genes implanted in him, but rather that this Gentile is viewed by God as a member of those who reflect the heavenly ideal of Israel. Okay, this notion, while it sounds complex, really should be no more difficult for us to understand than the very well entrenched and correct Christian principle that when we are saved by the blood of Yeshua's sacrifice, God no longer sees us as sinful men and women, but rather as pure and clean. The reality is, though, that we still have evil in us. Okay? We're going to continue to sin, even though we don't want to. We're going to fight to our deaths the urge to do wrong against God. Our DNA didn't change. Okay, We're still completely human. Old ways of thinking are still stuck in there, right alongside a knowledge of God. Yet the Father chooses to see us as free of sin. He sees us as justified completely before him, regardless of the physical reality of it all. Another way God chooses to see Gentile believers is as those who now possess the attributes of the people that were intended to embody that heavenly ideal on earth, Israel. We're not Jews, but in a certain sense, he chooses to see us that way. We're reminded again and again in the Bible of what a debt of gratitude we Gentile believers owe Israel. Not a feeling of gratitude, but an action of expressing that gratitude in very tangible ways. Tonight, when you go home, take a half hour, just, a, just 30 minutes, and read through Romans 9, 10, and 11. Read the chapters one right after the other, completely disregard 
the chapter markers, because Romans, of course, is just one long letter. Put aside, as best you can, all the allegorical teaching you've likely received about these chapters, and instead take it all at face value, just as it was intended. Okay? It's going to make this spiritual grafting process of Gentiles into Israel quite clear and unequivocal, unequivocal to you. Now let me state something else here. An everlasting God principle is being made visible and plain by means of the brazen altar for all of us to see, and it's this. Without a blood sacrifice, there is no atonement for sin. The constant day-in, day-out sacrificing at the altar was a visible and an awful reminder to the people of Israel of this principle. You know, I suspect, though, that just as some of us can speak of Jesus' sacrifice of himself in kind of a, I don't know, a removed, matter-of-fact way, perhaps some of those Israelites weren't choking back tears caused by the pitiful bleeding of those countless, harmless, innocent cattle and sheep and goats that were slaughtered on their behalf. Of the millions of birds that had their necks wrung. And those enormous bulls that had to be wrestled right, and tied up as they resisted having their throats slit and their lives ended. All right. But to the average Israelite who regularly witnessed the sacrificial process, it must have resulted in a most bittersweet understanding of the truth of it all. There is no atonement for sin without a blood sacrifice. The bitterness was in the reality of the seemingly endless stream of blood that flowed from that altar. The sweetness was in knowing that this was all arranged by a most merciful God so that their own lives could be spared and so that they would have an ongoing relationship with the holy God of the universe. What a great cost. Perhaps that Mel Gibson film, The Passion, was the modern day visual element we need to help us understand the horror of Yeshua's last hours of life. I mean, I know I winced and often turned my face away at scenes in that movie, trying, trying not to see all that blood. But folks, that's the horrible truth about sacrifice. Sacrifice isn't lovely. Those animals' deaths on the altar weren't peaceful, easy, sterile. It wasn't done in private. It was noisy. It was messy. It was foul-smelling. It was gut-wrenching. Those who brought their animals to sacrifice either had to do the deed themselves or in conjunction with a priest. There wasn't any shrinking away from it. You you couldn't separate yourself from it. You couldn't hide from this duty. Their sin, our sin, brings a dreadful price with it. Okay, Thank God there's no more need for that brazen altar. Now beginning in verse 20, 
the fuel for the tabernacle's menorahs discussed. It's to be from pure olive oil, refined, so it's to be the very best. Here is the instruction that the lights of the menorah to burn night and day. And it's reiterated that the menorah is to be placed outside of the curtain, the veil, the parochet that separates the holy of holies from the holy place. Now let me just mention, by the way, that Aaron and his sons who were to tend, it, tend that menorah do not represent the entire tribe of Levi. Other Levite clans will be selected for certain kinds of service, duties for the tabernacle. For instance, only from Aaron's direct descendants can come priests or high priests. And other clans of Levites, however, will be designated for what are considered lesser but important duties, things like musicians, guards, laborers, singers, or to tend fires or to fill water basins. Now notice in the last verse of chapter 27 that the use of the menorah and the specific clan of the Levites who have been assigned to tend it are to be a permanent regulation. Obviously, though, there were at least two times in Israel's history when this regulation was simply not doable. The first was during their exile to Babylon, and the second began with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, and continues right until today. The time, though, is very near when the temple is going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount that's today occupied by a Muslim mosque and a Muslim shrine, and the menorah is going to burn there once again. But the only reason the believers need to hope for this incredible event is because it means the return of Christ is but literally days after that temple's erected. In many ways, the reality is the temple is going to happen because of the disbelief of the Jewish people. Disbelief that Christ has atoned for our sins once and for all, 2,000 years ago. Disbelief that the spirit of the living God lives in us, not in a fancy building. Disbelief that the temple before that, the tabernacle, were just really copies and shadows of the real thing. And that Yeshua HaMashiach is the real thing. Let's move on to chapter 28. We're going to read the first five verses and then call it a night. Exodus chapter 28. Verses 1 through 5. You are to summon your brother Aaron and his sons to come from among the people of Israel to you so that they can serve me as priests. Kohanim. Aaron and his sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. You are to make for your brother Aaron garments set apart for serving God, expressing dignity and splendor. Speak to all the craftsmen to whom I have given the spirit of wisdom and have them make Aaron's garments to set them Set him apart for me, so that he can serve me in the office of Cohen. The garments they are to make are these. A ritual, a, a breastplate, a ritual vest, a robe, a checkered tunic, a turban, and a sash. They're to make holy garments for your brother Aaron and his sons, so that he can serve me in the office of Cohen, priest. Well, after a lot of preparation, Yehovah makes the somewhat anticlimactic pronouncement that Aaron 
and his sons Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar had been chosen and set apart to be Kohanim, priests. And at the same time, God instructs Moses that special garments are to be made um, for these priests, which also sets them apart from everybody else. We're told in verse 2 that Aaron's clothing, in light of his exalted position as the first high priest, is to be more special. All right. Special clothing used for the priestly sect was really nothing new for the Middle Eastern cultures, but it was new for Israel. Because up to this point in their history, by now, the line of Israel and Jacob was only about six centuries old. Up to now, they had no official priests. Whatever their worship had been until the exodus of Mount Sinai, it must have been very simple and personal and frankly rather unfocused. Right? The Hebrews were subjected to Egypt's gods and religious system for most of their history as a people. And so they adopted, probably subconsciously to a degree, I suppose, the general understanding of how gods and religion worked. Okay, that is, the Egyptian religious system became the lens through which Israel viewed the spirit world. So it's no wonder that Yehovah was so precise and definite and uncompromising in his instructions to Israel as to just what true worship was to consist of and what it was not to consist of. Of what true justice is and what it is not. And who God is and that he is one and that each people or nation did not have their own real and actual God dedicated just to them. It took a lot of years after Mount Sinai for Israel to get all this reasonably straight in their minds. And still, all throughout their history, right on up to Christ, they had grievous lapses into idolatry. Now that Jehovah has designated that part of Israel, the tribe of Levi, that was to be set apart as a site for service to him as priests, he left little detail of worship and service to be decided by men, even right down to what the priests were to wear. Now let me be clear. These garments were to be worn only during the Levites' time of service in the tabernacle. When they were not on duty, they wore what everybody else wore. Okay. We're going to look primarily at what the high priest wore. We're going to do that next week. Okay. Because his garments were incredibly full of teaching and symbolism. And because all throughout the Old and New Testaments we're going to hear of certain pieces of his uniform each of which carried very definite meanings. Now let me tell you right up front that the high priest garments were very prophetic. Now before we get to that though, let me end tonight by just giving you a general understanding of what the regular Levite priests wore. It was a very simple white linen outfit. It consisted of a tunic, a turban hat that was called a mitre, um, a belt-like accessory called a girdle, right? and breeches, pants that served, if you would, like underwear underneath this. Right? Now, now, white symbolized righteousness and purity. This is just the simple outfit that every priest wore, but not what the high priest wore. Next week, we'll look at what the high priest was assigned to wear. Okay, that'll do it for tonight.